his life was so tragic. And I, I don't know exactly what that would have looked like, but the Bible says that he's wrenching these train, chains apart. And I imagine they're listening to the sound of those chains from a distance, and when they don't hear him any longer at different times, they know that he's back in the wilderness. They know that everything's broken loose yet again, and they're probably, you know, doing paper, rock, scissor to find out the leadership team that has to go club them over the head again. This is a bad, bad scene. It's scary. And the Bible says this in verse 5. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying. Underline always. It's not sometimes crying. He's not kind of having a bad day or a bad week. The Bible says that he's always crying. That he's possessed by demons. And he's always crying and he's cutting on himself with the stones. He's absolutely broken. He's sleepless. He's getting this physical taste of hell in the here and now. In fact, of all the things he can't do effectively, one of them is this. He apparently can't even take his life effectively because I would imagine with that type of torment, and the Bible talks about 2,000 demons living inside of him, he wants to just end his life, but the Bible talks about him taking stones and cutting himself, and yet because of God's sovereignty, he's not yet dead. And here's what I want us to walk in this morning, online in this place, evil does not leave us in the same place it starts. He probably didn't see any of this coming. Evil wants to destroy our lives. There's this real figure in Scripture. It's not just Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit and good angels. It is the devil himself roaring on this planet like a roaring lion, and he has legions upon legions upon legions of demons, and their job is fundamental. It is to steal, it is to kill, and it is to destroy, and this guy is having all of that come down on him in this very unique passage, 2,000 strong. He's completely broken. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says this, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran down and fell on his face before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. I was listening to a Bible commentary this week. This Baptist guy in California that is pretty well respected and kind of smartest guy in the room type guy, he made this statement that I never would have thought of. He said, when you're looking into this text, just know that although it looks like they're seeing each other for the first time, the reason these demons were so scared is because they knew the authority that Jesus walked in and they weren't meeting Christ for the first time. They turn that corner, they're running towards the shoreline, and they're screeching. The demons can't control themselves because they can't even be silent even though they're afraid. Their natural reflex is to screech and to scream. And they come to this halt because they just saw the Savior that cast them and a third of the demons out of heaven with Satan himself, they knew his power, they know the narrative of the storyline, they know their days are numbered, and they come to a halt, and they start freaking out, and you actually see this incident take place in the other Gospels, where they're not necessarily scared of, you know, everything around them, but they're scared of Jesus himself because they know the authority that they have, and they know how the story ends, and they know where their authority is limited, and they know the truth better than you know the truth. They know the truth better than I know the truth on paper. They don't experience it, but they know it because they 
know the word of God. They know how the story ends. They know that in just a short time, when Jesus returns for his bride, whenever that is, their life is going to get infinitely worse. But the reason that they're freaking out is they don't think Jesus is going to mess with them yet. They think this is the time of his life. This is the time of his death. This is the time of the resurrection. But all of those things that are to come where they're going to be cast into a lake of fire, they're going, that's not supposed to happen yet. And so they come to a screeching halt and they make this statement. They say, what are you going to do with us? They know the truth of the perfect word of God. It's not that they don't believe it. It's that they hate it. And so they have this moment with Jesus where the Bible says that they're bowing down before Jesus And they do that, check this out, you guys. They do that before anyone else in the narrative of the Gospels ever does it. They recognize Jesus and his lordship as demons before anyone on earth even comes to that conclusion. And they say in Matthew 8, 29, they say, have you come to torment us? What is going on? And so they're putting the pieces together, and then they make this statement. They say, I implore you. I implore you, don't do harm to us. Don't torment us. And what's so moronic about that, what is so ironic about that, and why that's such a great paradox, check this out. All they've been doing is tormenting this man. All they've been doing is wreaking havoc on this community. The chains are being broken. Life is being disrupted. He's taking off his clothes. He's running into the wilderness. He is literally making a fool of himself. He's cutting himself on his body, wishing that he was a dead man. And then they have the audacity to look the perfect Savior in the eyes and tell him, we, please, we beg you, don't torment us. And all they've been doing is living a life of torment to everyone else around them. The Bible talks about Satan as the father of lies. And he comes to still kill, and destroy. And you see that all on display in this text. It's a very unique passage. Check out how Jesus actually deals with them in verse 8. For he was saying to them, come out of the man. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, he says, what is your name? And because Jesus has authority, they have to respond. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And the Bible says, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered into the pigs. And the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. It's a chaotic scene. 2,000 demons strong. I can't even imagine what this would have looked like. Come roaring out of this man who has been breaking chains And they flood into this huge herd of pigs. And the herd of pigs then run off the cliff and drown. And everyone around them is absolutely freaking out. Everyone around is going, who is this Jesus? They were scared when they had waves in a boat. And they were more scared when Jesus calmed the storm. They saw the authority and they were scared. They were scared when they had to put this guy in chains They were even more terrified when they saw the authority of Christ. And they're saying, who is this man that has authority over this type of power that we've seen wreak havoc on our countryside? 
I can't even imagine the dialogue that would have taken place between the pig herders and the pig owners. These were Gentile people. Can you even imagine that dialogue where they go home, they say, hey, how are the pigs doing? And they go, well, you know, we ran into this guy, Jesus, and it kind of went downhill, no pun intended. I mean, this was a crazy, crazy narrative where they would have lost their jobs, they would have lost their income. It would have been anywhere in the range of several hundred thousand dollars, these two pigs or these 2,000 pigs in today's economy. This was devastating to them, and they were terrified at the power of Jesus. And so what I want to do for the next bit of time is I want to break down this idea of what's going on in this text, and I want you to write some things with me. And the first thing that I want you to write down is this. The devil makes some people do it. That's not a popular, let me explain that. It's obvious, I think, but let me just, you guys have heard the saying, right? The devil made me do it. And so if, if you run in certain circles, specifically recovery circles, you try to sell that to an accountability group, they're going to laugh you out of the room. They're going to tell you, hey, when you're ready to be honest, you know, we can work. The devil made me do it typically is not true. But, but something interesting about this text that if we skim over it, we miss part of the Bible that's really important. When you look at this text and when you look at other texts in the Gospels, You'll find that sometimes the devil makes some people do it, and it's rare. You don't see it every day. But if you work with people long enough, I promise you this. I was talking to a former missionary in Haiti before the service. He's saying there were times when people were demon-possessed. This stuff isn't just some you know, wives' tale. Or this isn't just folklore stuff. This isn't, well, the Bible isn't actually real. No, this, the Bible is the authoritative word of God. He's telling us this story to show us something that sometimes the devil makes some people do it, and this man of the tombs was possessed by the devil. He didn't have control over his voice in this text. He didn't have control over the fact that he fell before the Lord on the ground. He didn't have control over the fact that he was running around naked, that he was running into the wilderness. Think about what his life would have looked like when these people are binding him up. I doubt they were bringing him, you know, grandma's cookies to eat. He was breaking those chains for very practical reasons. He was breaking those chains to go get his next meal in the wilderness. He was living this life of absolute insanity, and sometimes the devil makes some people do it. The idea of this text that we need to grab a hold of as a church is that there are these moments that can't be explained by anything else than supernatural demonic forces. And so my background is in therapy. I I study psychology. I believe in mental illness. Absolutely. I've seen it firsthand. I've seen its destruction. But there are some things, and I've been doing this a while, there are some things that you cannot explain as simply mental health issues or a bad upbringing. Maybe the the most extreme examples would be when someone decides that they're going to kill another human being, everyone awake? I know there's kids in here, but we're going to get graphic. And they decide that the best course of action after murdering them is to eat them. You can't just really say, well, I think they've got a mental health issue. When a child has been perpetrated on, I don't care how that goes down. When a child has been victimized, you can't really say, well, you know, I think there's just a mental health issue there. Look at me, guys. That's just straight up demonic. And if we can't rally around that idea, then we're, not just, we're just not having intellectual honesty. If you talk to people that have worked in mental health professionals, professions, if you talk to people that have been social workers, 
uh, you know, school administrators even, if you talk to judges, attorneys, there's just this certain time where the hair on the back of your neck raises up and you go, something is different about this situation and it can't be so easily explained as a mental health problem. I know this makes me weird, but I like studying kind of like serial killer stuff. And I know you're like, wait, what? Okay. I like Netflix, all right? So I like knowing, you know, how could some of those things happen? Anyone into like crime TV or things like that? I, good. That's why you come to New York. You're like, hey, I found someone that preaches to me. <laughs> I've studied this stuff. I did some papers in college and part of the graduate work on serial killers. And there's something interesting about serial killers. They have these common denominators. For instance, some of them have precortex brain damage. Damage to their limbic system, damage to their frontal lobe, and all that means is this, that part of the brain that doesn't develop until you're about 20 years old that says, don't do that, that's a bad idea, they have found that some serial killers have damage in that portion of their brain. They've also found these correlations that are a bit odd. They found that serial killers are more likely to wet the bed as children. They found that they definitely have a correlation between child trauma and future decisions. They tend to be fire setters sometimes. They've participated in animal cruelty, detachment from peer groups, heads in the clouds, and here's one for mothers on Mother's Day. It's not Mother's Day, but just, just wait for it. Bad relationships with mom. And how many of you could in church or at home go, wow, that really surprises me. I mean, a serial killer, I thought they'd be better than that. Here's what's interesting about that. Most of the people with that entire cluster of symptomology never grow up to be serial killers. So you can't just say, this is what it looks like. This is the part of the brain that when that part of the brain's triggered or that experience happens, then that's going to mean that they're going to be a mass murderer, the worst of the worst of the worst. I was watching this thing on Netflix when I told you I was in quarantine and watching things. I was watching this thing on Netflix. There was this guy in, in Colorado. Have you heard about this guy? Uh, he, he looks perfectly normal. He looks like he's just the salt of the earth, all the Facebook stuff, because Facebook's always real, all the Facebook posts, he's loving his kids, he's loving his wife, he's this attractive guy, and, and the, he's living this secret life. How many of you guys know who I'm talking about? Have you heard of this guy? You study this guy, and it just makes your jaw drop, you're going, because that could be my next door neighbor, and, and hopefully that's not my husband or anything like that, but you look at this guy in the storyline, you go, how could he do what he did? His wife comes home in the middle of the night, unbeknownst to her, she suspected it but didn't know it. This guy's been having an affair with some lady he met at the gym, decides he wants to start a new life, and so he strangles her. And then here's where it gets so crazy. He takes his two beautiful children who've been perfect Facebook posts and he murders them. That's not something you can explain by, I think he has a mental health issue. No known detachments in childhood, uh, no known fire setting, animal cruelty, none of the matrix that you'd say, this guy could be a potential serial killer. No, at some point in his life, something went terribly wrong. He allowed demonic influence to come into his life, and now he's making the worst decision that anyone could ever make. And I just want to just walk in this reality that if we can't be honest and say, there's this space that exists for the demonic, then we're in major trouble as a church because we're going to misdiagnose and mishandle those things that are getting thrown at us in the world when we become the light of the world, Christ, you know, hands and feet. We're going to miss that big time. This stuff with demonic forces is totally 
real. To kill, to steal, and to destroy. Here's the second thing that I want us all to write together. Just so you know, the first service at this time, I heard pins clicking. Okay, the second thing is this. You're like, well, I really don't write notes, but this is interesting. The second thing is this. The script has already been written. So if we just ended the sermon here, we'd walk out terrified, rightly so. But the script has already been written. This is what 1 John 3.8 says. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus comes to earth with a game plan. And to destroy means to annihilate, to undo, to remove, or to obliterate. And the idea is this, that the entire narrative of Scripture, from the time in Genesis where it, it prophesies in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when Jesus is going to come as a future Messiah, it actually says that he is going to bruise the head of the serpent, that even at this point in the storyline, the script has already been written. That in this moment, the demons are confused because they don't think anything's going to happen to them yet. At this moment in the story, there's a lot of uncertainty. But in Jesus's mind and in the demons' minds, they're freaking out because they know how the story ends. They just don't think the end of the story is going to take place yet. And so the end of the story goes like this, just very quickly. The last of the script is Jesus is going to return from his bride. After the tribulation, depending on how you view, you know, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, I'm just going to give it to you real quick. Jesus comes back for his bride. He reigns for a thousand years on the earth. He sends demons and Satan himself into the great abyss. And after the thousand-year reign of Christ, here's the script, he sends them into a lake of fire, end of story, and they have no power left. And what, what I want us to walk in as a church is we have nothing to be scared of. And when you watch things in the movies or you watch things, you know, in any narrative outside of Scripture, the best stories are always the good guy wins at the end, especially if you like 80s action movies. The, best, the good guy always wins in the end, but then the bad guy comes along, and you never quite know because if you know it's going to get boring, he's just right under the power of the good guy, and it's a back and forth until the very end. And it just doesn't work like that at all in real life with Jesus Jesus is up here, Satan is way down here, and when he sees the Savior, he even has to bow and to tremble. You guys ever seen a, a really solid Christian movie called Bloodsport? Watch the TV version because it gets a little inappropriate, but the TV version that I'm publicly endorsing is Jean-Claude Van Damme. Who's seen it? All right, you guys are young. You need to go watch this movie. It'll change your life. I was watching it in quarantine, and there's this, uh, there's this guy who's the bad guy. He has this massive barrel chest, and he flexes out his chest throughout the movie. Have you seen it? Every guy wants to be the bad guy in this movie. And so I'm watching this movie, and, and you don't know who's going to win. And, and Van Damme has this moment where he's about to win. But to make things more intense, this, this bad guy in the movie takes out this magic power dust, and he throws it in the eyes of Van Damme, and then he's blind. Anybody? Do you, I feel like I'm giving an analogy with just no one has seen this movie. He's blind, and you're going, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? And then he begins to wax the floor with this guy, even though he's blind because he's Van Damme and you're not. And but he's when I'm watching this movie like it, it can't just end, right? There has to be the good guy who's winning and the bad guy who steps up and the good guy who goes blind and the bad guy who tries to kill him and then the good guy just in the nick of time if it wasn't for that one kung fu kick would have lost the fight. Here's scripture. 
Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, ruling and reigning. Complete authority, destroying the devil, the quickest KO in the history of the world. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them into open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus comes to earth with a narrative that's already been written. Genesis prophesies about it. He deals with demons to show his messianic power in this text. He sends them into pigs and not the great abyss because it's not time for them to go there yet. He's coming back for his bride, and when he comes back for his bride, he is going to unleash hell on the devil, on demons. He wins big time. The script has already been written. We have nothing or everything to be scared of depending on where we land with Jesus. Look at how the text ends. We're going to close with this. The herdsmen fled, in verse 14, and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, they were afraid. They were afraid when they knew the guy that was demon-possessed. They're more afraid when he's not demon-possessed because they know something shifted. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, to, but said to him, go home, go to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And so the demon-possessed man went away and began to proclaim the gospel in Decapolis and how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Write this last statement down as a statement of hope, as a statement of mission for our church and for the gospel to go forward. The third thing that we're closing with is this. Jesus has a special heart for the extra broken. He takes those that are most marginalized, that have been most abused, that have been most tormented, that have had some of those things that we happened, talked about just a few minutes ago in this text, happened to them in their life, being violated in the midst of their greatest pains, even as children. He takes those people like the demon-possessed man in this story who everyone wanted nothing to do with, and he brings him hope. He brings him transformation. This guy was running around naked, and now he's clothed. This guy was out of his mind. Now the Bible says he's in his right mind. He was out of control, and now he has self-control. He was isolated, and now he lives in community. He cried out in the night over and over and over again, and now he cries out to the risen Savior Later, right, this is his future story as he's a Christian and Christ is going to go to a cross and rise from the dead. This guy gets radically saved. Jesus has a special heart for the extra broken. This guy was living with chains wrapped around him that he had because of demonic influence, 2,000 strong. You guys see these rusty things? We'll close with this. He has these chains that are sadly a little heavy for me. He has these chains that are wrapped around his body and with no problem because of physical principalities that are empowering him, he just snaps these things like they're noodles. He has all the power in the world to break physical chains, but he has these spiritual chains that are wrapped so tightly around his soul that he can't breathe. And Jesus comes in, this guy bows down, 
and he takes these spiritual chains and they drop to the floor and everything changes. And as I'm reading this text, man, I just thought this is the heart of new life. If you're new with us, this guy in this story, I mean, we're about reaching all people with the gospel, but every movement has a pulse. This is the pulse. That those spiritual chains for the extra broken that are marginalized are let loose by Jesus Christ. We are the hands and feet to proclaim the good news in that message to people that are hurting. That's why we phone in so tightly on recovery groups here at New Life. And I, I just want to challenge us as we walk out of this place. Maybe you know the Lord. You've been saved for a long time, but there's certain things going on in your life. You have these spiritual chains because I'm not saying you're demonically possessed, but how many of us, if we're honest and do an honest inventory, have to concede that we're not possessed because that's not a place where Christians can land, but we are influenced because we've allowed these strongholds and these footholds to come into our lives and these chains that no one else sees. It looks like we're free, but spiritually we're living in a tomb amongst dead people, and there are these chains around our life. There are these chains around our heart, and it's suffocating us because we come to church week after week after week, and what no one knows is we're walking in some dark stuff. I want to challenge you with that. You need to spend some time in the Word of God worshiping the Savior of the universe and praying to Him and crying out to Him just like this guy did in the text. Jesus, take these chains from my life. You are the risen Savior. You have all power and all authority. And I have been opening up strongholds in my life for evil things to take place. And statistically, that's the majority of people coming to church on any given Sunday. Jesus is the chain breaker. He brings transformation. He brings hope. He brings authority. If you don't know Christ, I don't know all of our stories here. If you don't know Christ, this might be the day where you say, man, I'm bound by all these things, but I've never surrendered my life to the Savior. I've never given him my heart, and so I am chasing after the things of this world, and I don't think I'm demonically possessed. I don't look like the guy in this story, but if I died today, I have no hope. I would be separated from a risen Savior for all eternity. I want you guys to know, if you're not saved in this place or online, Jesus went to a cross in your place. He rose from death. He conquered it. He defeated it, and your path is to destruction. Like the guy in this text, this is your eternity without Christ. But in Christ, he takes those wounds. He takes those marks. He dies that death, and he rises from death, and he breaks the chains so that you can live with him forever. He is a good and faithful, faithful Savior. Do you know Christ? Have you submitted to his power and his authority? And have you been made new in him? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. It brings truth. It brings life into the darkest areas of our heart. For all of us that know you as Savior, but we have these chains that are wrapped tightly around our souls. We have this sin that we're unwilling to give up. I would just ask in this moment, that you would do a work, that we'd repent and we would surrender. Say, Jesus, you're in charge. I am so sick of doing it my way. And for everyone that doesn't know you, has never declared you as Lord, they read about this story and they go, man, I don't know this Savior. 
I've heard some Bible stories, but I don't know that guy. I've never heard that one. For everyone that doesn't know you as Savior, that right now in this moment, they would recognize you with all authority and all power and that you are the only way to heaven. You're the only way they're going to escape the judgment for their sin. I pray that right now they would say, Jesus, I want new life in you. I follow you with my entire heart and my life. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.